This Parsha podcast is dedicated in the merit of Daniel Aaron HaKohen ben Deborah. Young Daniel injured himself a couple of days ago now. Thank God he's doing well. But we are dedicating this Parsha podcast in his merit. May he have a complete recovery with no lingering effects. And may he experience only blessing and goodness and bestow much joy and pride to his family, to his community, to the entire nation, and of course, to the Almighty. It's Hanukkah, and it is Parshas Miketz. There's a special confluence of events. We're nearing the end of 2022. Now, I must warn you, we have a really challenging week ahead. Like many of y'all, our kids are home from school in the last week of December. And that coincides with Parshas Vayigash. And for some reason, Parshas Vayigash is perennially one of the hardest Parshas for me to conceive a podcast on. I don't know why. That's just the way it is. So we're going to have really cold weather, all the kids at home going crazy, as you would expect. And a tough Parsha to end the year. So I'm going to need your prayers that we have. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty, a Parsha podcast, not only this week, Parsha's Meet Kate's, but next week as well, Parsha's Vahidash. Now, as I mentioned, the past couple of weeks, we are assembling some testimonials from y'all, from the listeners of the Parsha podcast and all the other podcasts from the Torch Center here in Houston, Texas. Send me your audio testimonials, your video testimonials, your written testimonials. If you want to remain anonymous, that's okay. You can remain anonymous like this sample testimonial from an unnamed listener of the Parsha podcast. Give it a listen. I have never been to the Torch Center. I've never even been to Houston, Texas, but through Rabbi Walby's Parsha podcast, Torah 101, and the Jewish History podcast, my life has changed dramatically. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, since I started listening to the podcast, I have never missed one, and I sometimes even go back to listen to them over again. Um, I think it's been about five years since I started listening. And just some practical ways that it's changed my life. Um, you know, we light Shabbat candles in my home now most weeks, something that we never did before. Uh, I wear tefillin every day. Um, I pray, uh, Davin pray with a minion multiple times a week. Uh, I say a prayer before I eat anything. And if I remember, which is rare, uh, I say a prayer after I've eaten. Um, I even study, um, the Dafyomi, the daily, uh, page of Talmud for, you know, between five and 10 minutes every day. Not, not a lot, but, um, but something. And that's kind of what it's given me this idea that like, I can't do everything. Um, I can't be perfect or, you know, at least today I can't, but, um, what it's done for me most, I think is that every day I strive to listen for God's will for me, uh, in every situation every day. Um, and I think I'm a different person and this is directly a result of the torch center and specifically uh, Rabbi Yaakov Walby's podcast. I'm, I'm so grateful to them. And thank you so much for submitting that. You can submit your testimonial as well. Send me an email, rabbiwalbyjima.com. Send me a WhatsApp. Send me a text. Carrier pigeon. Snail mail to the Torch Center. Don't forget your friends at Torch. Now, as you know, we have only one major fundraiser a year. 
It's February, March time. And we have a pledge. We're going to ask people for money once a year to help keep the flame of torch lit and the flame of Torah beaming throughout the world. So if you've already given once this year in 2022, you're already one of our partners. You're already a supporter of the great work here at Torch. Now, we are, I've convinced the board, I've convinced the board, we are willing to accept a second and third and so on donation, of course, but this appeal is not directed at you. But if you have yet to support Torch in 2022, I really want your support. Visit our website, torchweb.org. You'll find the link in the description, in the notes of every podcast and partner with us in keeping the Torch of Torah aflame. We're going to start off with a battery of questions that seem to be perhaps unrelated and hopefully resolve these questions with one wonderful principle that I think we really need to know and integrate into our journey to success, to superstardom, in our path to perfection, in our gallop to greatness. You know, we're here at the Torch Center. We're on the Parsha Podcast. We're not shooting for mediocrity. We want to become great people. And to do that, we're going to have to navigate all sorts of situations and challenges, and we're going to have to assemble a repertoire, an arsenal of tactics and insights and principles to get us to our destination. We're going to develop, please God, an idea that will be pivotal in our pursuit of achieving our perfection. So let's begin. The parasha starts off after two years. It's been two years since the events of the previous parasha ended. So we left off with Joseph. He was in jail. And he had had two cellmates who happened to have been high ministers in Pharaoh's government, the butler and the baker. And they happened to be Joseph's cellmates. And Joseph skillfully and adroitly and with tremendous clairvoyance interpreted their dreams and established his bona fides as a wise person, as a talented person. And he tells the butler, you're going to be reinstated. And the baker, I have bad news for you. Your head is going to be removed from your body. You will be decapitated. And in fact, that is what happened. And Joseph made a petition to the butler, when you are restored to your post, tell Pharaoh about my plight. I'm here. I'm innocent. I was accused of a crime I did not commit. Invoke my case. I need some clemency. Get me out of here. And the parsha ends that the butler was in fact restored, but he did not remember Joseph and he forgot him. And it's been two years. And Joseph, you would imagine, was waiting for his knock at the door. Okay, you've been granted clemency and nothing happened. It's two years. And now Pharaoh has some troubling dreams. He sees the seven skinny cows and the seven fat cows, and things end up in a surprising way with the skinny cows consuming the fat cows and remaining skinny and brittle and feeble. And that happens also with the wheat, and he's so 
perturbed by it, and no one can provide some guidance. And the butler's memory is jarred, and he remembers the old cellmate Joseph, who was so adept at interpreting dreams, and he tells that to Pharaoh, and Joseph is ushered out of jail and brought before Pharaoh. That's how our parsha begins. And there's an incredible Midrash featured in Rashi at the last week's parsha. The Midrash says that really Joseph was supposed to get out two years earlier. But Joseph was punished because he relied on the butler and he did not rely completely on God. That's why he was condemned to be incarcerated for two more years. Of course, this is very hard for us to accept. You know, this is, this is real exacting judgment because Joseph relied on the butler. Think about it. He's in prison for a crime he didn't commit in a foreign land. Nothing is going in his favor. And now he sees his ticket to safety. He sees someone who's going to be in front of Pharaoh in a couple of days. And Pharaoh like this, one stroke of the pen, one stroke of the papyrus, can release him. Isn't it the right thing to do to try to petition the butler to have your case presented before Pharaoh? What's he supposed to do? Do nothing? Don't they say, God helps those who help themselves? Why is Joseph so aggressively punished? for what seems to be the right thing to do. Now, of course, we know that the righteous are judged by God with a much higher standard, with the harshness of a hair's breadth, but it still raises the question, if this crime is so egregious, well, how do we understand how Joseph did it? And if it's not so bad, if it's sort of innocuous, why was Joseph punished so severely? You know, if you tell me that this behavior is just, it's just beyond the pale, to, to rely on a human and not rely on God, it's deserving of two years of incarceration. Well, how can someone as righteous as Joseph make such a blunder? And if it's not so bad, well, why was he punished so harshly? Now, you may recall last year in a podcast titled Joseph's crime was a whole podcast dedicated to this question. And according to my notes, we offered six different answers to this question. And today we're going to propose a seventh answer. But that's question number one. What do we make of Joseph's mistake, so to speak, that resulted in him being Condemned to two more years in the slammer. Question number two about Joseph in general, you know, is the whole story seems to orient around dreams. Every transition in Joseph's rise to power is precipitated by dreams. He has two dreams and that induces his brother's enmity, gets sold as a slave. And then we have the butler and the baker and they have their dreams that establishes Joseph's credentials in the eyes of Pharaoh's advisor, the butler. And then Pharaoh has two dreams, and that's the condition in which Joseph is finally catapulted to power. What is the significance to the fact that every beat of 
Joseph's march to the monarchy is brought about by a dream. And in general, if you study the dreaming theme in Joseph's life, you find something really interesting. Joseph has his two dreams, and he tells them to his brothers. This is in last week's Parsha. And the brothers hate for him. They already didn't like him so much. But their hate for him exacerbated. And if you look at the fifth verse of last week's Parsha, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they increased their hatred for him. And then in the following verse, we're told the content of the dreams. So if you read the verse critically, you'll notice that the brothers' hatred for Joseph increased before they even knew the content of said dream. Evidently, regardless of the content of the dreams, they would have hated him for telling them his dream. The notion of Joseph sharing his dreams with his brothers is just offensive, even if you don't take into account the content of those dreams. If you look at the story, they seem to ascribe the word dreamer as a pejorative. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and see what happens with those dreams. So we see some, we see some dissonance here. Dreams are so salient to Joseph, so important to Joseph in his story. He tells them over. He values them enough to share with his brothers, with his father. And it actually, in reality, plays a big part. He undergoes pivotal changes due to his dreams. Yet, what Joseph values so much, evidently, that's what precisely enrages his brothers. Why is there such a disconnect between how Joseph views his dreams and how the brothers view it? It's also interesting, just I'll throw in another, we won't call this a question, we'll call this a textual oddity. Joseph was demoted. He was sold. Well, first he was thrown into the pit. Should we kill him? No, let's let's sell him. And Rashi tells us that he was sold multiple times till he eventually arrived in Egypt. So he's a slave for Potiphar. And in the house of Potiphar, he seems to rise. Everyone loves him. He has charisma. He has charm. He has grace. He found favor in everyone's eyes. But the verse says, this is in chapter 39, verse 2, that he was, the verse previously says that he was bought by Potiphar. And the verse says that God was with Joseph and he was a successful person and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. That little part of the verse seems to be extraneous, seems to be redundant. We're told that he was bought by Potiphar. So why does it have to say that he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian? Then Joseph is incarcerated, and we see the same thing. This is in chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph was placed in jail, the place where the felons of the king are placed. And he was in the jail. Again, there's a redundancy. He was put in jail, and he was in jail. You know, the Torah always tells us what we need to know and no more. Why does the verse add the seemingly redundant statement that Joseph was in the house of his master, that Joseph was in jail? And finally, the last question 
is from the name that Joseph gave to his eldest son, Menashe. This is in chapter 41, verse 51. And Joseph named his firstborn son Menashe. Why? Because God made me forget all my suffering and the entire house of my father. This seems like to be a very unusual thing to celebrate. Joseph seems to be dissociating himself with the house of his father. Why would he do that? It seems improper for Joseph to forget the house of his father. All the more so it seems improper for him to say, I'm naming my kid after this effort to forget the house of my father. Now, in the rebroadcast episode, we offer a couple of answers to this question. Today, we're going to give you a new one. So we have a battery of questions. Let us, with the help of the Almighty, suggest an approach. This approach will answer all the questions, please, God. But it will also illuminate for us the special superpower of Joseph. Joseph had a very unusual journey, odyssey, to his greatness. He climbed his great heights in a very unusual fashion. There's a secret that Joseph embodied. Now, we know Joseph, of course, was the greatest of his brothers. Kabbalistically, we're told that there's like one cohort, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're on one level. And then you have the tribes. They're a notch lower. And then you have Joseph. Joseph is like the link connecting the patriarchs with the tribes. And he's kind of almost like a patriarch himself, but not quite. And he's not quite like his brothers. He is the designated one, the Nazir Echav, the designated one of his brothers. He's the only one of Jacob's sons whose own sons became tribes of their own. So Joseph is halfway between the patriarchs and the tribes. And it's kind of ironic that the brothers, they didn't notice Joseph's greatness. When they came to look for Joseph, they went to the places where they thought the lowlifes would hang out. They never imagined that he would actually rise to such prominence. So Joseph is the greatest of his brothers, yet the brothers themselves, they thought that Joseph was a good for nothing. And they argued that Joseph deserved to be executed for his egregious crimes. There's something the brothers just fail to see. They don't notice. They don't understand about Joseph. Joseph achieved greatness that outshined, outshone, outshone all of his brothers, but they failed to appreciate it. So if we discover what the difference between Joseph, who he truly was, and what the brothers thought of him, then we'll be able to understand what really sets Joseph apart. And I want to frame it, frame the idea with a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of the Fathers. This is in chapter 2 of Pirkei Avos. This is a teaching of Hillel. Hillel said five different things. Don't depart from the masses, the public. 
And don't believe in yourself to the day you die. And don't judge your friend until you arrive in his place. And don't say something cannot be heard, because maybe it will be heard. And this is the last one that we want to focus on. Do not say, when I have time, when I have peace of mind, that is when I will study. Why? Why should you not say that? Shema lo tipane. Perhaps you won't have that time, that peace of mind. And therefore, you'll, be, you'll end up with nothing. You're busy. Your life's chaotic. Everything's crazy. There's so much noise. It's so busy. And you may say, well, when things calm down, when we're empty nesters, when I'm retired and I have plenty of time and all this chaos subsides, then I'll focus on my soul and the soul's agenda and study of Torah. Don't say that. Shemalotipana, because perhaps you won't have that availability. So simply put, this Mishnah is telling us that, you know, if you're waiting for more propitious circumstances, don't wait. Don't delay what's really important in waiting for this circumstance. Maybe they won't come. And therefore, yes, it's the conditions are not great now, but make do with the bad, with the suboptimal conditions. Now, my brother-in-law, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Kaplan, who happens to be a senior lecturer in the great Mir Yeshiva, the largest and most prestigious yeshiva and the oldest yeshiva in the world, he has an interpretation that he's fond of saying about this Mishnah, a deeper meaning. Don't say when things ease up, I'll study. Maybe they won't ease up. You know, the simple interpretation is that, well, of course, it would be better to have better conditions. But alas, that's not guaranteed. So do the best with what you have. The way he likes to interpret this Mishnah, don't wait for the ideal conditions. Shemalotipana, perhaps the design of God is for you to flourish specifically in a situation of suboptimal conditions. You find yourself in a harsh situation. It's busy, it's chaotic, it's crazy, it's difficult, it's challenging. There are all sorts of headwinds that seem to impede you. Don't wait for things to improve and then to pursue your greatness because perhaps these harsh conditions are actually the ideal situation for you to achieve your greatness in. Perhaps you're like Joseph. There are some people who do best, who flourish most when things are not ideal. When things are chaotic and there is a maelstrom, upheaval, lack of stability and equilibrium and things are off kilter and out of balance. There are some people that they flourish specifically in those situations. And therefore, don't wait for things to calm down because no, this is, this is actually when you achieve a greatness. What an incredible idea. This is Joseph. He's with his family. He's got Jacob and all his brothers and this environment of holiness. Things are so stable. And Joseph doesn't stand out. No one realizes what 
a gem he really is. No one, no, no one sees his potential. His father maybe does, but his brothers, they don't see his potential. They say, eh, he's the beautiful nothing. Nothing will amount of him. Nothing. And somehow when things get rocky, he's placed in, in perilous physical and spiritual circumstances. And he thrives. He shines. That's where he truly actualizes his, his greatness. Joseph took a very unusual path to his greatness. And it was designed to go through very difficult times. This is the unusual quality of Joseph. He is able to thrive when things are very, very difficult. In suboptimal circumstances, that is where Joseph shines. So it starts off with dreams. Joseph has his dreams and he shares them with his brothers and he ascribes value to them. And we see they ultimately did, in fact, foretell what will actually happen. And his whole life, it seemed dreams after dreams after dreams. And the brothers, they say, dreams? You're telling me your dreams? Before you even tell me the content, irrespective of the content of the dreams, the mere notion that Joseph is sharing his dreams, that triggers their enmity. Dreams, we're told, happen when we're at a weakened spiritual state. After all, the soul departs, and fantasy and imagination take over. We're weaker spiritually, and that is typically not the best environment for great accomplishments. Our life can be distilled to the following mission. Marshal your intelligence over your fantasy. Marshal your higher self, your soul, over your, your base instincts and inclination and imagination. Dreams are typically the domain of the fantasy. It's not something that contributes to our spiritual advancement, typically. We don't look at fantasy and imagination as being, oh, it's just harmless. It's just silliness. In our philosophy, your superpower is your, your intellect and your soul. And the fantasy, well, that's the domain of the Sahara. Rabbi Israel Salanter defined the Muslim movement as the battle against the fantasy and the imagination. And Joseph wakes up, I had a dream, I want to share with all of y'all, gather around. And this arouses his brother's enmity. And he is derided and ridiculed as a dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. The brothers look at, at Joseph. He's not, he's not serious. He's not rooted in reality. Why is he telling us the silly dreams that he had? He has this imagination. He's living in a reverie. He's not living in the real world. His values, his priorities are not substantiated. They're not grounded. They're not real. For the brothers, the idea of taking a dream, the domain of the Yitzhahara, ostensibly, and ascribing it with enough importance that you repeat it over to your brothers and to your father, that idea is anathema. To the brothers, Joseph was a dreamer. They thought that Joseph perhaps was Ace of 2.0, a citizen of the imaginary fake world under the thumb, under the control of the Yitzhahara. But the truth is, Joseph's dreams were all prophecy. In the environment 
that they viewed as being poorly designed for spiritual advancement, that is precisely where Joseph flourished. And we see this pattern again and again in Joseph's ascent. As his situation gets apparently worse, he gets he gets stronger, he gets more advanced, he seems to do even better. Under the most difficult and questionable of circumstances, Joseph just blossoms. When he is around his brothers, when he is in physical and spiritual safety, he doesn't seem to shine. And he gets enslaved. And he gets enticed to sin. And he gets thrown into prison. And the worse the situation gets, the brighter Joseph's star seems to shine. With his family, he is ostracized as a pariah. His brothers hate him. Even his father reprimands him. The brothers do the ultimate betrayal. They strip him of his clothing. They throw him to the pit. They pull him out just to sell him for a few pieces of silver. Joseph's situation deteriorates. But what happens to Joseph? He's sold as a slave. And in the house of Potiphar, he shines. Chapter 39. God was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that God was with him. And whatever he touches, he's successful. And Joseph found favor in the eyes of his master. And he was in charge. He was given the reins. Everything that his master had, he gave into the hands of Joseph. And whatever Joseph touched turned to gold. And ever since Joseph is appointed over his master's household, everything just flourished. Success everywhere he turned. And the master was just uh, this <laughs> Joseph character. He's unbelievable. Everything that he had, his entire estate was in the hands of Joseph. And Joseph was beautiful. Joseph was resplendent. Joseph was stunning. Joseph was really something to admire. Where was Joseph? He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. He was there. The Torah stresses that he was in a very suboptimal situation, and that's where he flourished. That's where Joseph came into his own. And then his situation got even worse. The slave was imprisoned. And this is not uh, the federal penitentiary where you can could, you could listen to podcasts and you can play ping pong and watch the World Cup. This is an Egyptian prison you know, 3,500 years ago. And Joseph's star shines even brighter. What happens? His master places him in the prison. And he was in the prison. Again, the Torah stresses he's in the most inhospitable of situations. And God, again, was with Joseph. And God took the chesed, took all the kindness, the divine kindness, and placed it upon Joseph. And everyone just gravitated to Joseph. And Joseph found favor and, and grace in the eyes of everyone. And again, he's given all the reins. And again, the master, the warden is able to outsource all the work to Joseph because God was just plainly and evidently with him. And whatever he did, he was successful. 
Joseph was in jail. And that's where Joseph became Joseph. Joseph's superpower was that when he was placed into compromising circumstances in conditions that would have thoroughly broken others, he didn't just survive. He really thrived. In the worst of conditions, that is where Joseph emerged. He goes to Egypt, a cesspool of impurity, and he thrives. He's a slave. He's a prisoner. And he steadily builds and develops himself, edging closer and closer to who he is destined to be. And then Joseph makes a blunder. He makes a mistake. He asks the butler to petition Pharaoh on his behalf. And for that crime, Joseph is roundly punished. Two more years of incarceration, simply for doing what would be the most basic effort to improve his circumstances. And it's so puzzling to us. It seems like he made the the correct decision. Why is he punished? This is the answer. This is the seventh answer to this question. Indeed, asking the butler was the right decision for everyone else, but not for Joseph. Joseph is different than everyone else. Most people perform best, they develop best under positive conditions, conditions that are conducive for growth and development. Joseph is an outlier. He flourishes when things are bad. He's able to channel his greatness specifically in places where most people are not capable of achieving anything. For Joseph, the ostensible improvement of his situation might not be the best thing for him. If Joseph was not placed in harsh conditions, he would not shine as brightly. For him... Again, Joseph was in the jail. He was in the house of his master. He was in Egypt. He's flourishing not despite the conditions, but to a certain extent because of them. For Joseph, trying to find respite and freedom was a mistake. If he was under ordinary circumstances, he would not grow and transform as dramatically. Don't say when things will improve. I'll study then, perhaps, when things have not improved yet. That is when and the situation in which you're supposed to flourish in. Perhaps this is, in fact, the ideal conditions. And that's why Joseph was punished. Because he failed to realize that the situation that God placed him in was actually the most agreeable and conducive situation for Joseph. Now, there was someone else who thrived like Joseph, and that is Jacob. Jacob, we read at the beginning of last week's parasha, he loved Joseph. They were kindred spirits. Rashi tells us that they looked the same. And we know when the Torah says that they looked the same, it doesn't mean that they you know, had a similar comb over. It means that they had a similar spiritual makeup. 
Rashi also tells us that the Torah that Jacob studied in the academy of Shem and Aver, he taught that Torah to Joseph. And it's interesting, if you look at the storyline of of Jacob, it really matches that of, of Joseph. Jacob was also deliberately sent to very unusual and difficult places. And that is how Jacob became who he became. That elicited from him his superlative greatness. And like Joseph, Jacob also tried to improve his situation. And like Joseph, he was severely punished for it. The first Rashi in last week's parasha, Parshas Ve'eshev, Bikesh Yaakov Leishev B'Shalva, Jacob wanted respite. He wanted to live in peace. He had too chaotic of a life. He wanted some relaxation. And for that, he was punished. Jacob was someone who, like Joseph, thrived even more when the situation was perilous, when things were dangerous. He grew more. He developed more by having to navigate the various crises of his life. First, he has Esau. He's got to steal, usurp the blessings. And then he has to flee. And then he has to deal with labor for 20 years. And then he comes back. And I fight with Esau's angel. And then Esau again. Then Dina is kidnapped and assaulted. Those are the conditions in which Jacob flourished most. And he grew more than he would have had he remained in the cocoon of the tents of study. That's interesting. Both Jacob and Joseph were students of a very specific academy, the Academy of Shame and Aver. Chapter 25, verse 27. Jacob was a wholesome person who dwelt in the tents Rashi says, the tent of shame and the tent of Aver. There were various academies. Abraham, Zakain v'yosheb yeshiva, he was an elder and he had a yeshiva, he had an academy. And Isaac had an academy. And Jacob himself had an academy. And Judah, we'll read next to his parasha, he went down to Egypt to found an academy. But there was also another academy the Academy of Shame and Aver, and Jacob studied there. And then chapter 28, verse 11, we read that Jacob went to sleep on Temple Mount, and Rashi tells us that he went to sleep on Temple Mount, but for the 14 years that he spent in the academies of Shame and Aver, well, there he didn't sleep. And in chapter 37, verse 3, we read, Jacob and Joseph were kindred spirits, and that means, Rashi tells us in one interpretation, that the Torah of Shem and Aver, Jacob transmitted to Joseph. So we have these two people, Jacob and Joseph, and they are studying specifically in the academies of Shem and Aver and not in the academies of Abraham and Isaac. And the question is why? Why did Jacob and Joseph study specifically in those academies, the academies of Shem and Aver, and not in the academies of Abraham and Isaac. Moreover, why was there even a need for two concurrent academies? Just merge into one. Mergers and acquisitions. Fuse these two academies into one. So there's an amazing essay 
in Emes Lyakov. This is a book written by the great Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And he tells us there's a fundamental difference between these two academies, the academy of, of Abraham and Isaac and the academy of Shem and Aver. Abraham and Isaac were celebrities, were famous statesmen, were leaders of movements that numbered thousands, even tens of thousands of adherents. Abraham came to Canaan and he was given success and distinction and status and stature in Canaan. He was revered. He was admired. And he had an academy. What a privilege it was to study in the academy of, of Abraham. Abraham, the greatest man alive. Isaac, his son and successor, also the greatest man alive in his day. It was prestigious. It was Ivy League. The Ivy Leagues. To be part of that academy was something to take great pride in. And the students that came there and studied in it were able to study the Torah of, of Abraham and, and Isaac. What an incredible thing. But there was another academy, Shame and Aver. And these are two people from a very different era. Abraham is heralded, is lauded, is admired. Shame was a son of Noah. And he lived through the flood. And his great-grandson, Aver, well, he came of age in the generation of the dispersion. These are two veterans of the worst generations of history. And their academy was designed not for a time when the Torah and Abraham and Isaac and everyone was admired. It's an academy designed for Torah and success and withstanding and even flourishing under the most harsh of conditions. And Jacob and Joseph both needed to be reared in the academies of shame and aver. Because both of them, their role was to find greatness amid the stormy circumstances that the Almighty will position them in. All the way back in the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev, Rashi tells us that Jacob, he's like a diamond. But he's a diamond that's trapped amidst the pebbles. And you have to filter through, sift through all the pebbles until you find the diamond. That is an apt description of Jacob and subsequently Joseph. You want to find a diamond? You go to the diamond store. You go to 47th Street, the Bursa, the Diamond Dealers Club. You go to the high-end places, right? That's maybe for most people. The students of Abraham and, and Isaac, most people find their diamonds in more upscale places. Jacob and, by extension, Joseph, they're students of Shem and Aver. They have to go to the pebbles and the dirt and the muck. And only there they find their diamonds. The way for them to access their greatness was to sift through all that nonsense and all that chaos and all that difficulty. And only once you do all of that can you access your greatness. 
And the way to receive instruction for how to do that is to go to the academies, not of Abraham and Isaac, but to the academies of, of Shame and Aver. They're the ones who flourished when there's the flood and all the corruption, all the perversion. And in the time of the dispersal, the whole world's ganging up against God, making a tower to go battle with God. Heresy is sweeping over the whole world. That's a world full of pebbles. And to find your diamond in there, you have to be trained under shame and aver, not under Abraham and Isaac. And when both Jacob and Joseph, they sought to escape the pebbles, they sought to escape the inhospitable conditions to find better conditions. Both of them were sharply and harshly thrust back to their stormy situations. For Jacob and Joseph, there's a reason why they're amongst the pebbles. Don't say when things improve, when I get out of the pebbles, I free myself from all these pebbles, then I'll find my diamond. No, 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 no. Maybe that's where you're going to find your diamond, in the pebbles. For Jacob and Joseph, they have to be amongst the pebbles. They have to be in a very compromising situation to truly cultivate their greatness. Joseph was punished when he tried initially to free himself. And then he learned his lesson when he fathered a child. He named him Manasha. For God has made me forget the warm, cozy confines of my father's home. In prison, Joseph still had a fleeting, flickering desire for normalcy. He wanted a respite. He craved, he yearned for more propitious conducive times, ostensibly. He wanted calm, security for an environment that welcomed him in his way of life. And then he's taught a two-year lesson. Joseph, you're different. In dreams, when other people flounder spiritually, Joseph discovers prophecy. As a slave, as a prisoner, Joseph shined. When surrounded by pebbles, Joseph, armed with the Torah, taught to him by Jacob, that originated in the academies of Shemineva, Joseph ascended to great heights. His diamond outshone the diamonds of all of his brothers. For most, the situations in which Joseph was placed would spell doom. For Jacob and Joseph, that's when they ascended to unimaginable heights. Joseph did not have it easy. He's alienated from his family. He's betrayed, sold as a slave, brought to the least holy of lands, imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Ordinary people, if they were subjected to the trauma of Joseph, they would spiral into the abyss of anger and depression and spiritual devolvement of resentment, be bitter and anger. And Joseph thrived. And as his situation deteriorated, he got better. And once he was done, his diamond was so polished that everyone agreed, even the butler agreed, that he is worthy of being a king and being given total power. And then the brothers come and they're meeting Joseph 
and it's just staring them in the face. And they just cannot imagine that this person is, in fact, Joseph. They cannot believe that Joseph became that great. And their reasoning for their assertion is quite sound. When he was with us, when things were great, he was wholly unremarkable. In the most hospitable conditions, Joseph did not distinguish himself. When he was surrounded by righteous people, by refined people, by Jacob. When things were great, Joseph was just nothing special. Well, now his conditions got only worse since then. So if Joseph is in fact still alive, the place to look for him is in the taverns and the brothels and other places of ill repute. He was unremarkable under optimal conditions. And things got only worse, a lot worse. If he's alive, he's a total degenerate. But the truth is they had it backwards. The harsh conditions that Providence designated for Joseph were actually perfectly suited to extract his greatness and to bring it to the surface. Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. He was in prison. He was in Egypt. He was around the pebbles. And that's where he flourished. This is a very important insight, I think. All of us, everyone who's still alive, has to know this. The Almighty expects you to discover and to polish and refine yourself until you are shining like a diamond. But not everyone is designed to achieve their greatness in the exact same circumstances. Some people are like Joseph and Jacob. They discover their diamond while surrounded by pebbles. While in very trying, very disadvantageous circumstances, Jacob and Joseph thrived. Is that the right word? Throve. Succeeded. And yes, they had received their proper education for it. They were both trained in the Academy of Shame and Aver. They were both instructed in this secret, how to flourish in a tumultuous environment. Neither chose to be thrust into those stormy winds. Jacob was forced, forced to usurp the blessing, forced to contend with Laban, forced to encounter Esav, forced to deal with the assault on Dina and the rampage of Shimon and Levi. He did not choose to be placed in the chaotic environment that he found himself in. But that is where he would develop best. And that is where he was positioned, around all those pebbles. Joseph, too, he did not choose to be placed in his conditions. But that is where he was destined to become the greatest of his brothers. And that is why he was placed there. And both of them, after they achieved meteoric success in their very uncomfortable settings, both sought a respite. Jacob sought to dwell in peace. And Joseph asked the butler, help extricate me from prison. And both were punished for it. For them, 
the bad circumstances were divinely ordained to best extract their potential and trying to shake themselves free of that. Well, for them, it was wrong, even if it was the right thing for everyone else. Don't say when things loosen up, when things improve, when I get out of this terrible situation, then I'll grow. Maybe you're like Jacob, you're like Joseph. Maybe the situation of tumult and upheaval and chaos, maybe among pebbles is where you find your diamond. Maybe your rose is surrounded by thorns. Maybe your oasis is in the middle of a harsh, unforgiving desert. The brothers had a very different way of arriving at their greatness. It was as students of Abraham and Isaac. And they were not aware of the path of Joseph. His dreams were indications that he was just a deluded young boy with no bright future. Now, Jacob, he harbored in his heart the feeling that maybe Joseph was in fact different. It takes one to know one. And he prepared him with the Torah of Shem and Aver. And Providence provided Joseph with the setting to thrive, as Providence does for all of us. But not everyone is like Joseph, says the Mishnah. Maybe, perhaps, you're like Joseph. And therefore, don't say, I want to leave the situation. No, this is maybe the best situation for you. Now, it is interesting, just as a side note, we do see that the spirit of Jacob and Joseph was implanted in the Jews in Egypt when they were enslaved and they were oppressed. The verses in chapter 1 of Exodus, As per the degree of oppression, that's the degree to which they grew and they flourished and they proliferated. The Egyptians tried to suppress and depress and oppress the Jewish people. And their efforts achieved the exact opposite of what they wanted. How did the Jews grow stronger as their situation deteriorated? Well, it's because the spirit and the influence of Jacob and Joseph was present among them. Now, it's clear this is not for everyone. Most people, I think, are like the brothers. They do better in better environments. But some people are like Jacob and Joseph. And we have to be aware of that. And I'll tell you a little secret. My grandfather, blessed memory, was a Joseph. This is me speculating, but that's what I think. The name of his magnum opus is Aleishur, which is a description of the admiration of Joseph. And he would say about himself that during the war, he was in a very, very difficult, tumultuous, chaotic environment. He was in the neutral country of Sweden. And he would tell us, all yeshiva students that came here, invariably, became corrupted. This was a place that was swirling with heresy. And very good people would come here and would get corrupted within a month. And he wrote in one of his books how he stayed strong. But it's well known and documented that that's how he became great. No one would wish this upon themselves. No one would voluntarily opt to be placed in the most harsh and severe of situations, 
But for some people, that's actually where they flourish the most. For everyone else, I think there's at least aspects of this idea that must be part of our repertoire and arsenal. Even if it's better for us to be in a conducive environment, and we should strive as best as we can to be in a conducive environment, there are times when we need to marshal a bit of our inner Joseph. For most, we have to be ready for growing pains. For Jacob and Joseph, this was not growing pains. It was a means of ascent. It was paining grows. Both of them were in a consistent, acute state of upheaval for decades. And this is how they became the giants that they became. For most of us, we have to be aware of this quality. Maybe we mothball it in good times, but every once in a while we pull it out and we deploy it in the way that Jacob and Joseph demonstrated for us. We should all strive to be students of the Academy of Abraham and Isaac, but maybe, maybe, maybe take a course, take a semester in the Academy of Shem and Aver, and when the storm comes, we too can grow from that experience. I want to end with a quick Hanukkah question. Every year, Parsis Mikates is Hanukkah. We always read about Joseph during the week of Hanukkah. And there's no coincidence. There's got to be some overlap. What is the overlap between Joseph and Hanukkah? So over the years, I've heard many different ideas. And today we're going to propose one of our own. It's going to follow really nicely from the idea that we just shared in the Parsha podcast. What did the Greeks want to do to the Jewish people? The Midrash tells us they wanted us to disavow our relationship with God. The verse at the beginning of the Torah talks about the land being barren and empty and desolate and dark. Says the Midrash, the word dark is a reference to the Greek influence upon the Jewish people. Because they instructed and commanded the Jewish people to write on the horn of an ox that they have no portion in the God of Israel. What does it mean, the Midrash that tells us that they told us to write on the horn of an ox, we have no portion in, in the God of Israel? So there's some symbolism here. Of course, the ox is a bovine. And the morale explains that they were trying to highlight the golden calf. The Greeks wanted us to remember the golden calf. And the reason why is because the Greeks were trying to get us to repudiate our connection with God. And they said, well, you guys did it before. After the Exodus and you're eating manna and you just defeated Amalek and you have Moshe and you're about to get the Torah at Sinai. You can finally get the Torah at Sinai. You experience prophecy on a national scale. And then you yourself couldn't maintain that. When you were at your peak of holiness, you did this in the golden calf. If you think about it, this is the opposite of Joseph. Joseph, when things were really bad, when the situation really deteriorated, that's when he shone, he shined, he brought light 
to the darkness. The Greeks wanted to take the darkness and place it upon the light. Now, it's interesting. Many of the sons of Jacob are compared to animals. Judah's like a lion and Naphtali's like a swift deer. And Dan is like a snake and... Of course, not like the animals themselves, but the, the, the powers and the abilities that they represent. Joseph is an ox. Right on the horn of an ox. The horn is the part of the ox that can be separated from the animal. The Greeks wanted to separate us from Joseph. Right on the horn of the ox. Separate yourself from the force of Joseph and repudiate God, as he did in the past, right after the Exodus. The Greeks did not suffice with rejecting the spiritual themselves. They wanted us to repudiate it. And again, it's really interesting. The Greeks did the exact opposite of Joseph. The Greeks came to to the temple, came to the Jewish people, and sought to place darkness in a place that previously had just light. And that's the opposite of Joseph. Joseph came to a place of tremendous spiritual darkness and suffused it with light. And perhaps this is the reason why we read about the story of Joseph during the Hanukkah festival to remind us of the message of Hanukkah and in the fact that it's truly embodied by, by Joseph. Unlike the Greeks who tried to demonstrate that there's no place that has true holiness, even the place that you think has holiness, there's nothing there. Joseph showed the opposite. There's no place that doesn't have holiness. The dreams in Joseph's world, not just empty, sinful fantasies, there's holiness. Egypt, it's not just a cesspool of impurity. He can achieve great heights even there. Every Hanukkah. We remember that even in the darkest of times, it's the winter, it's dark, there's a polar vortex coming. We can illuminate it with light. Hanukkah is the time for us to channel our inner Joseph and suffuse light to every corner of the world. To take the torch of holiness and light and goodness and kindness and Torah and spread it everywhere, even to the most unexpected places. Have a happy Hanukkah. I thank you so much for listening. Send me an email, rabbiwalbejima.com. Send me your testimonials. Visit our website, torchweb.org. Listen to the other incredible Torch podcast. I think for listening, you have an incredible rest of your day and rest of your Hanukkah and have a sensational, unbelievable, uplifting Shabbos, this is a very special Shabbos, because it's also Shabbos, and it's also Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month, and it's also Hanukkah. So this is one of the super rare times where we read from three different Torah scrolls. We read, of course, the Shabbos reading, and the Rosh Chodesh reading, and the Hanukkah reading. Have an incredible, uplifting Shabbos. Thank you for listening. Please, God, without the matter, we'll talk again next week, and send me an email. Rabbi Walby at gmail.com with your questions, your comments, and your feedback.